and welcome to our podcast. We are the Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello! The premise of our show is very simple. For each week, we have carefully picked two films, which we think have things in common. We shall then discuss them to find what their common traits are. One is my suggestion based on my particular area of expertise, Golden Age of Hollywood, and the other is chosen by my co-host, which is from their specialty. So that'll be anything from uh, 1970s New Hollywood through to the current blockbuster age that we're living in. The only rule is both picks of the week have to be first time viewing for the other person. So today's theme is Samurai Japan? Yeah, I mean, with it's yeah it, it's pretty much just ja- yeah japanese um like feudal japan or 1800s japan in in one of the films um we're totally going against our cons podcast concept yet again um where danny has got the most recent uh blockbuster and i've got the older film um so we're kind of we're, we're mixing it up again because we're all about changing things around and not yeah, things comfortable for ourselves. <laughs> I think this one was uh, again because I found out that you hadn't seen this film, and I just jumped at the idea of being able to talk about it because I quite like it. I quite like it. But we will start with your pick of this week. Yeah. So um, I had found out that um, Danny is a big Akira Kurosawa fan. Um, as we found out in this Sion Sono episode where she said that she needed to um, clean herself, like visually clean herself from Sion Sono <laughs> with some Akira Kurosawa films. Um, but she had, she had never seen uh, today's film, Ran, um, from 1985, um, which is Kurosawa's reimagining of King Lear and arguably his his last masterpiece depending on his view on his late on his last couple of films and it's definitely his final historical epic um of a film centering around japan you know his his historical japan so i've kind of got a little brief brief plot synopsis um with ran legendary director akira kurosawa reimagines reimagines shakespeare's king lear as a singular historical epic set in 16th century japan Majestic in scope, the film is Kurosawa's late-life masterpiece, a profound examination of the folly of war and the crumbling of one family under the weight of betrayal, greed, and the insatiable thirst for power. Um, so that kind of that kind of plot synopsis does a job to kind of capture the essence, I think, of what Ran is. Um, I did have an actual plot synopsis that goes into a little bit more detail. Um, So here we go. In medieval Japan, an elderly warlord retires, handing over his family to his three sons. However, he vastly underestimates how the newfound power will corrupt them and cause them to turn on each other and him. So, Danny, what did you think of Akira Kurosawa's Ran? So, um, yes... I of course I loved it. I like you said I'm I'm a big 
fan of uh, Kurosawa's work. I think, yeah, I think personally Rashomon is one of the greatest films ever made and one of those films that stay with you long after it's finished, making one doubt human nature once again. But for... can I can I can I just can I just interject a minute? Um, yeah. Are you familiar with the? There's a Simpsons episode where um, they go <laughs> no, to Japan. No, we're not doing this again. No, no, no. So they go to okay. Japan, and my, Homer starts complaining about Japanese culture, and Marge says to him, "Oh, Homer, you liked Rashomon," and he goes, "That's not how I remember it." <laughs> and it's, <laughs> just. Sorry, I just needed to get brilliant. that out there because it's, it's yeah, that's not how we remember joke. it. Yeah, it's that's just brilliant. brilliant. Yeah, I mean, Simpsons are just like quintessential. Like they're like the the most. They just encapsulate the wisdom of all all mankind in that one show. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Hang on. Um. I had. A, I've actually had a Julia de Cournau moment uh, on this film when oh. halfway through I realised I had seen it before when I was very, very little. So, yeah, with Ran, I've been trying to remember the circumstance. I remember I was with my grandparents and it was it was in black and white because we didn't have colour TV back when, way back when. Uh, I think it must have been way before 1990. The funny Deepest, thing is, darkest 1980s Cold War. Yeah, Romania. yeah, yeah. The funny thing is, I can't imagine a time when my grandparents would sit down and watch a two-hour, forty-minute Japanese film adapted from Shakespeare. But it, um, it happened. I remember the gourd song, um, the the dance moments from the the jester and with Kiwami. Um, the blo- the boy playing the flute, the bl- the blind boy playing the flute, uh, the flute, and the the helmet made of grass with the dandelions put on top of it. I just yeah, those those like it just stayed with me. And I, when I as as I went along, I, I realized I had seen it. Uh, but of course, I was very little, so it doesn't really count. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a great, it's a masterpiece. The music is great. The direction, cinematography, the costumes are just mind-blowing every frame i f- i felt like every fr- every freeze frame you could you could pause on each frame and it looked like a painting um and i think there's there's something just to, to be said about akira kurosawa and shakespeare i think he was more it, it's quite weird to to think of this japanese director and his connection with with the with english like the the most english writer playwright that has ever lived i think he's a quite a shakespearean director and uh, he just gets him i kept finding myself comparing it to the actual play which i actually saw last year star- starring the great ian mckellen and it just felt to me that even with different media theater and cinema you just get that theatrical feeling to kurosawa's vision the whole theme of war human condition brother fighting brother people killing one another it just fits in with the kabuki style and i think it's it's quite a haunting image to see the 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 main character in in that makeup like the old man makeup 
a bit exaggerated, but it just gets to the point and it just stays with you. And the film has a, the Shakespearean style in spades, I felt. The idea that you can retire with dignity and keep some of the power you had with no issues is, yeah, and then it, when it comes to it, you know, power, it, when it comes to power, you can't deal with it in half measures. You can have it or you can't. And what, what was I saying? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think that's what the movie manages brilliantly to portray. And the the ghosts of the past, of course, add another layer of misery and just darkness on, on the idea of, of human condition, showcasing that power is always taken from someone else and it can be lost just as easily. So everything, it just feels like an illusion, doesn't it? Um, I love the way um, the main character is Hide, Hide Tora. Hidetora yeah. was always framed. Sometimes he just truly blends in with the background. His his pale face, his pale skin just blends in, in with with the desert and the sky. But sometimes when he's in that like a, when he's in a fortress or he he's really standing out. I love I love the idea of 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 blending in with the nature and just like connecting with the nature. And I loved. I think there's something to be said about how Kurosawa films the sky. There's there's always that shot of the sky, and it's just it's it's great. I the the, the montage the stage of the castle sort of montage was brutal, but it was beautifully done. It kind of made me think of The Godfather for some reason, oh, wow. like quite That's... quite bloody, but it just yeah it's again with like yeah. The character of the jester who makes it just feels like he makes more sense than anybody there. He just he's supposed to make you laugh, but he's what he says most of the time makes more sense and he has more wisdom to it than most of the other characters. The fool the fool has more knowledge than Yeah. The king, it's just yeah. yeah, yeah, he has more knowledge and he has more wisdom than the actual king, the lord of the of the of the of the region. Uh having said that, I mean I loved it. I just, I just feel that there was something slightly missing. It just feels like, I mean, in my mind, I know I haven't seen all of Kurosawa's films. I've seen quite a few of them, but I haven't seen them all. But it just feels like in my mind, there's like, there's always that connection. That there's always that image of Toshiro Mifune, and it just feels his absence in this. I'm not, not to say that the other actors aren't great because they are all of them it just took me a while to get into the story and, and the pacing of it and and get get used to the pacing um but yeah i i it was it was a great experience it took me a while to sort of get into understanding it but it was yeah once i got there it was it was great so yeah yeah um yeah i i, I... So I in in kind of preparation for this, I did what I did a few weeks ago with Troy, where I just of course you did <laughs> loads of other films. So, um, and I kind of I think I just kind of came to the conclusion that I think that this adaptation of Shakespeare's King Lear is kind of like the ultimate culmination yeah. of all the historical epic and samurai films that Akira Kurosawa made. 
Um, so with Throne of Blood, he gave us one of the greatest versions of Macbeth. Um, and to show for Mifone is has one of the great is one of the great actors ever. Um, and I have some thoughts about Mifune. Where, if if he was in this, what would this mean? But I it just feel you can't really talk about one without the other, can't can you? It's like talking well, about Ingmar Bergman without talking about Lev Ullmann and B.B. Anderson. It just feels like it feels right. It, there's one of those collaborations that just stays with you. I think I think if Mifune, there was a review that I read, and I can't remember why I read it. That um, so I apologize if I'm just. I'm butchering this or paraphrasing or stealing it. Um, that said that Mifune, if Mifune was in this, he his physical presence would maybe detract from the ultimate because he would he would have the Hidetora role played by um Tatsuya Nakade, who is a long term, long time uh, Kurosawa um collaborator as well you know he was he was in his first film was in um, seven samurai he was in uh the film um his preceding historical epic um kagimusha um where he played the shadow the the main character uh in in that and then he goes on to play hidatora in this and i th- i he ha- he brings kind of like a stillness i think yeah um so yeah like Oh no, I found I found it now. So I um I actually did find it. So uh, just a little bit on it's on the Criterion website, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. Um, and this is just a big quote, so I'm just going to read it out. Cool. Hidetori is played by Nakadai, the handsome Japanese superstar who first appeared for Kurosawa in a fleeting bit part as a passing young samurai in The Seven Samurai, and later played the sexy psychotic gangster Unasuke in Yojimbo. Nakadai, who also appeared in Kagamusha, where he played replaced the original star Shintaro Zatoichi Katsu, never seized the center of Kusura's world as did Takashi Shimura with his pure humanity and the swaggering Toshiro Mifune. But in a way, his greater fragility and good looks, even tortured into Hidotora's no mask of a face, fit the ten- sense of tenuousness and impermanence that the film everywhere projects. When Nagatai's Hidatora descends into madness, we may not feel for him as much as we would for the fearsome or human Mifune in the similar role. Mifune, the great beast, might have ravaged our hearts, but the more exquisite-looking Nakadai, balancing himself between real emotion and stylized, no-like gesture, makes us see something crucial, the inevitability of Hidatora's fate and of the decline of the world he created that will ultimately destroy him. Um, which I think I perfectly captures my I think thoughts. So. Yeah. On where on what Mifune, because if if you think of Mif- a Mifune role, like it would be it would be his role in 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 um uh, Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood. Yeah, I was gonna say. Where you, so you imagine that kind of character being portrayed in in as Hidatora and I don't think it would work. I think the stillness and like it like like this guy that he says um says about you know he has this kind of yeah stillness to him. There is there is there is something to be said about the idea of the of the film the whole film being stylized and you kind of feel feel that with the pacing because there's a lot of pauses and it all feels quite theatrical. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, 
Kurosawa went with against Toshiro Mifune that because if he if he was Mifune that in the character it would have been a different film it would have been a different pacing it would have been a different style altogether even though it would have been Kurosawa's trademark on it but adding that layer of 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 stylizing and, and with that makeup and yeah it just it works differently but yeah yeah I mean, like the the relationship between Kurosawa and Mifune, um, I don't I don't want to rehash it because I'm not going to do any justice in terms of what happened to their friendship or what happened to their collaboration. But needless to say, I, I think it, it kind of revolves around Mifune getting popularity in America due to his role in um, the TV series Shogun, and then Kurosawa did not kind of reconciliate his success. He didn't, you know, and publicly made some remarks about Shogun so um <laughs> and, but I do know uh, uh the George Locus actually offered Mifune the role to either play Darth Vader or Obi-Wan yeah, Kenobi in the original Star Wars um which is really interesting because I mean, I mean it's not interesting in that it's a surprise because if you watch Star Wars the original Star Wars the the way even in Empire Strikes Back maybe not so much Return of the Jedi but definitely the first two the way the lightsabers are is very much how like the, Kurosawa the does the samurai swords, swords. exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and then obviously uh, you know um you know in the prequels it, it goes full-on flashy but we're not getting to that um <laughs> but yeah no i i i think yeah as i said so with throne of blood um Kurosawa kind of gave us one of the greatest versions of Macbeth and I think with the Hidden Fortress Seven Samurai, Yojimbo and Sanjuro he became like the master of like the genre so Hidden Fortress is very much it's it's it is pretty much Star Wars before Star Wars I mean yeah. you watch Hidden Fortress and, and it's think... insane how much he's lifted from that um Seven Samurai is an epic and it's but it's also very humorous it's an adventure film there's it's not a surprise that it was remade as a western um Twice. you know as the magnificent seven you know uh, yeah um, however many times magnificent seven has been done i mean i think twice also... over in, in like big high profile productions that oh yeah a bug's a bug's life that's that's magnificent seven yeah yeah um so yeah and then yojimbo pretty much and sanjuro pretty much became a fistful of dollars and for a few dollars more exactly um, sergio leone um, which apparently um, with, uh, Kurosawa wasn't happy about but then I think uh, Leone gave him the international rights to Good, the Bad, the Ugly I think Did he? Uh, gave, him, gave him the Asian rights to, yeah, hmm. for the production I think to kind of yeah um, which is I think I think that's right I'm not, I'm not too sure but yeah and then you know in the 60s um, <laughs> uh, he his is kind of his his late in the 60s 68 was when tora 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 came out but that film was originally i mean it's done by a, a, the credited directors are now uh, richard fleischer and kinji fukusaku who uh shot the the japanese sections of the film kinji fukusaku is well known for being the director of uh, the yakuza papers films or the battle of without honor and humanity but also um one of my favorite films battle royale which is a, a fantastic film but um and then um but originally um i found out that tora 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 when akira kurosawa was on the film because he worked on the film 
uh, originally as, as the Japanese side of the, the direct, you know, direction, um, he signed on with the thought that David Lean was going to do the, 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 the American stuff. Um, because, you know, it was, that would be the kind of stature, but then David Lean for whatever reason didn't do it. And Richard Fleischer came on and, um, 20th century Fox treated Kurosawa really poorly. Um, um and for obvious reasons because they're 20th century fox they didn't know that you can't treat directors like that whereas in japan they treat directors very highly but over in america they treat them like shit um and then kurosawa apparently uh 20th century fox found you know realized that they can't do this and then started you know helping him out and kind of helping kurosawa wherever needed um kurosawa is very famous for his obsession to detail um he famously um you know, asked for things to be torn down and rebuilt again if it was a sign of nails in like <laughs> period buildings. Um, the rumor is that in Tora Tora Tora, if the uh, battleships weren't painted the correct color of gray, he would have them repainted. And um, it depends on who you talk to and who, like who you read. Um, yeah. Um, it depends who you talk to and who you read, but um, there's either he was either fired from the production or he walked away um and then you know and then he kind of just struggled to get films made um in the 70s and 80s he i think i read somewhere that he made something like 20 or 22 films in the 20 years from post-war to 1965 or something and then the 20 years after he made four um, yeah because he only made 30 altogether i think yeah but like then in that period features. from the yeah, from the 70s and 80s he was kind of deemed as old-fashioned um hmm. by japanese production companies they obviously looked towards the younger directors um he then found work from the soviet union of all places um they gave him money to shoot uh tesu uzala in the in the in siberia um he tried to launch a production company um which only released one film under him uh which is called dodsk uh, den which was a, a a complete flop over in japan and bankrupted the company um he then turned to drink um he didn't commit suicide but the the um the story is is that he cut his arms so much with a razor blade that it was like it was a, a cry for help kind of thing um and then you know in in these kind of and years afterwards like he was working on ran um but before he did ran uh he uh, was given help financial help from francis ford coppola and george lucas um to make kagamusha um which i see as a kind of a dress rehearsal for for ran um in an interview he said that he used kagamusha as a location scouting exercise for ran um and kagamusha is so full of color vivid color it's so much more vivid than this and it's got lots of theatricality and and a lot of tragedy and a lot of stillness that is kind of perfected in ran um i said i really like kagamusha i don't know if you've seen kagamusha i have not oh so good um (laughs) i i yeah um I th- I think I think like even though like it's not the best of like as in it's not the masterpiece like Ran is or Seven Samurai I think it's kind of my favorite if that makes any sense 
Like, okay. there's just something about it that I really like. But yeah, like, Rand was uh, written and storyboarded over the course of, like, 10 years before he found financing to shoot. Um, each shot was painted, which is insane. He did the same for Kagamusa as well, where he pretty much just painted every shot that was going to be in the film. Um, and then, you know, each thought and I process was kind of... I could see that watching the film. Yeah, I mean, like, his obsession to detail kind of bears Like I so... said, it was just every frame you could you could stop on, you w- it was like a painting. Yeah, there's, um, there's actually a book, um, a screenplay book that has all the... Well, most of the paintings in this book. Um, it's out of print, but I had a look on eBay and there's like, a copy on eBay for, like, £90. Um, so that's, like... It's That's now on my lot. list of, it's now on my list of things to get, because <laughs> yeah. I'd love to go flick through that. But yeah, like he he used the story as King Lear kind of as an inspiration point, and kind of like and exactly like Throne of Blood, you know, he transposed the thanks to Shakespearean themes and story to to kind of feudal Japan, um, and it's it's just a it's just a masterstroke. It really is. Um, I got a few few little production details like. So Hidetora's third castle, which was burned to the ground, was actually a real building which Kurosawa built on the slopes of Mount Fuji. Um, no miniatures were used, and uh, Tatsuya Nekadai had to do the scene where Hidetora flees this castle in one take. Um, he shot an entire sequence with Hidetora making his way through a golden field with um, the fool, uh, Kiyomi. Um, and Chris Marker, the the French, I don't want to say French New Wave director, but the French director Chris Marker shot a behind the scenes documentary on Akira Kurosawa on on the set of Ran called AK, which I thoroughly recommend. It's a it's a fantastic companion piece. I think to I've Ran. heard of it, and it's on my list um, to watch. I think it's on Mubi. So if you have Mubi or the Mubi Cinema thing that they've got now, um, it it I think it's on there. Yeah, um, I do. It, yeah so ak ak shows how the film is kind of prepped and filmed um and you see the 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 crew working on this sequence um you know where they paint the the field with gold um literally painting it with gold and and it was an amazing sequence to kind of watch them kind of pull together and then they filmed it um and then that sequence ended up on the cutting room floor wow uh, yeah i know um it's it's so so beautiful there's there's a great bit in that section where they're talking about they they film it in in the black and they do the take and there's a fake moon in the background which is uh chris marker said it's like um uh george melier's moon from from voyage to the moon it's it's kind of like and they, they the crew then thank the moon for doing what they want it to do and it's a really mm. quite a nice moment um and it's like it's those little things um about kind of japanese culture that i really like that they they you know there's appreciation for what they're doing that you kind of don't have in hollywood and even british films um yeah so the the there's so much beauty in the film and and the sequences shot on mount fuji are, are breathtaking um in that in that chris marker documentary which i'm just going to end up showing details from um it was struggle for them to breathe at certain points because they were on literally a a volcano slope um you know the scene where uh so where the horses 
uh, running across the ground and they're kicking up lots of dust. That yeah. was created. That effect was created um, by them spreading concrete powder over the over the ground. So to create like to create more dust coming up, and then obviously like you had this fog, this natural fog that is on mount fuji anyway and then it's obviously there's more smoke being added in like you see them using smoke and at one point kurosawa complains that there's too much smoke and you can't see the horses um which is quite funny <laughs> yeah so um the the, the in the, in the film you have this like there's a stillness to it but there are there are explosions of violence and and fire and death and it's it's the explosion, these explosions of violence aren't like a welcome reprieve. It doesn't relieve anything. It just, it just drowns the film further into sorrow and death. That's kind of how I read the film, anyway. The execution for La uh, of Lady Kide, um, for example, is is not one of justification. Like it's not the same as seeing a Saji succumb to madness in Throne of Blood. Um, you know, with her being that film's version of Lady Macbeth. You yeah. know, when we see a Sage rubbing, washing her hands, we're just like, yeah, you got yours. You're going to madness. But with Lady Kiede, like, even though it, it she's... ends with with yeah, with a swash of a sword, and it's yeah, the swash of the sword, and it's a horrible. Her just her thing is like, I've done this because Hiratora destroyed my family, and you, every everybody in this film is kind of is just doomed to death. Um, so in a in a New York Times article that I found, which I'm, again I'm going to add this one in the show notes. Um, there is a quote from Kurosawa in which he says that the Lear project also says something about the way human beings treat each other and the way the world is going. Yeah. So his films are, are kind of often seen as showing humanism, um, very human, like and almost quite positive. I, th I think I think Hidden Fortress and Yojimbo and Sanjuro do this quite quite well in his historical and samurai films. I'm not talking about his more dramatic work. I think Akiru is perhaps the, 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 the main film when people talk about his humanist kind of aspect. But he uses Ran um, and Kagemusha, for that matter, um, as damning examples of, of how humans do end up treating each other. And you kind of think about where the context of these two films were made in the in the early eighties. You know, the the world was at the height of the Cold War anxieties, yeah, yeah. and at the time we were really only a few years away with it all coming to a head with the the near invasion of Afghanistan by the USSR. Um, which is, I, I, I when I thought about it in that context, it all just kind of clicks together. Um, so you have the collapse of the clan and all the death and all involved and the scheming and the punishment shown in my view is kind of Kurosawa abandoning hope and showing the folly and end of human nature so you were in like Seven Samurai in the Hidden Fortress you know people kind of come together to do the right thing and there is an ending which is honourable here there is none there, yeah you know, everyone in, dies in, at the end yeah in, in Kagemusha the, the shadow warrior falls the army is, the army is slain in in Ran, the the family's greed, their anger, and the history end up driving Hidatora mad and damning the family to death. And you only end up with a blind man standing alone on the burning rubble, <laughs> surviving yeah. in grief. He's and gonna despair. be okay. And he's like, it's amazing because there's this blood red sky and it's a silhouette almost. Smoke is kind of billowing off, and the, the clan at one point blame the gods. And the fool, Kiyoma, Kiyoma, declares the gods to be responsible 
but ultimately the gods stand by and watch us tear ourselves to pieces because that's pretty much all we deserve um yeah. which is quite apt and at i think the it resonates <laughs> with with the 2020 state of things as well personally yeah i mean I'm, I'm, things I'm aren't, that, yeah. don't fare much better now than they did in the 1980s yeah if, if not worse um during so during the destruction i've nearly finished during the destruction around the third castle the the school by uh toro uh takemitsu um it's a fantastic score by the way actually just phenomenal um his school kind of replaces the diegetic sound of the film and yeah. the, the movie becomes a silent movie at that point i didn't notice this on my first viewing i was so wrapped up but in this viewing i just i i noticed that it became a silent film um i think it's because i've seen a lot more silent movies since then um you know the deaths of the, the army the you know the soldiers and the gunshots the horses running and the, the burning of the castle it's just kind of accompanied by what i think can only be described as like a cry or a sorrowful death that's the one of the way the score is and the music and the, the sympathicity within the you know the edit and then the, it cuts to the, the the gunshot and death of toru and then the the sound picks up again and it showcases exactly what akira i think akira kurosawa saw in humanity 1985 and then Hidatoro walks out of the burning castle. He's succumbed to madness, and the soldiers just don't approach him. Yeah. And this this film it's is very powerful scene. Yeah, and I I this it kind of caught me off guard on this viewing how much this film is just about death. And ran roughly translates to, depending on what etymology you kind of used, roughly translates to the word chaos. And yeah, I found that out. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense because it is all chaos, and there's no one, no one is saved, not even the innocent. Yeah, um, you know, Lady Sue, who a uh, Lady Sue, who is, you know, perhaps the most the kindest character in the film you know Hidatoru you know yeah he, I was kind of hoping her. she'd be she'd be spared but she was not spared well, she was beheaded on the on the on the wishes of Lady Kiede who ultimately died because um I think his name hang on I, I need to get his name right because it's gonna bug me otherwise uh Kuragane is it Kuragane yeah it's Kuragane yeah Kuragane um just doesn't approve of the, the the beheading of Lady Sue. Um, well, she deserved to die. That one. What Lady Kiede? Yeah. yeah, she did. She did. She did because she was she was like the film's. If the film had a villain, like a human villain, she, she would probably, probably be the closest it, to yeah. it. Yeah. But I she don't... was quite scheming. She... I mean, you, you could see that she had reason to be scheming because she she had everything taken away from her and she was probably married off without her consent to to Toro. But at the same time, yeah, she was quite devious. Um, yeah, I don't think she was married to Toro. She was married to I thought she was married to um Zuru. Yeah. Sorry, I've missed I might have mispronounced him. The, the first son. Yeah, yeah the, the 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 main son. Um 
yeah this this film is just excellent it is it is a masterpiece um and yeah i mean if if we if we get if this is basically a precursor to us talking more about akira kurosawa um than than i'm all for it yeah basically um yeah i i don't if do you have any more thoughts no that's it. i mean I, we can talk about kurosawa for quite some time i think <laughs> Sorry, I, Sorry I you cut you. out then. Can you, you say okay? that again? Yeah, I, I had a call. Sorry yeah, can you say that. that again? Yeah, sorry. I was like, I was going. I was saying that we could talk about Kurosawa till the camp, till the cows come home, and and still yeah, not. We, it's still yeah. barely scratch the surface. Yeah, um, there's there's so much more Kurosawa that I haven't seen that I would like. I would kind of want to go through. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so yeah that's that's kind of that's kind of us done on ram um i think uh and danny's got the if if you can call it that the blockbuster of the two is it the blockbuster the hollywood film I don't of know. the two the hollywood the hollywood uh, stylized version of it and I have a whole defense prepared. So, um, but before I ask you what you thought of it, I'm just gonna give a quick synopsis. So we're going to talk about 2004's um, Edward's Wicks, um, The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise. An American military advisor em embraces a samurai culture he was hired to destroy after he's captured in battle. So this is uh, directed and produced by Edward Zwig of Glory, Courage and Defire, Defiance, Legends of the Fall, Blood Diamond and a few other um, films. I quite like his work. So what did you think of it, Nick? So, all right, you say you got a defense already. Um <laughs> <sighs> I mean, if this is going to sound as though I'm being negative, but I'm actually not. So the last samurai isn't doing anything remarkable. It kind of it feels like Dances with Wolves, you know, The Last of the Mohicans, um, and Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line, but with Tom Cruise and Ken Watanabe and and set in 1800s Japan. I mean, it's it's an okay it's an okay film. It it it's perfectly serviceable film. Um. I mentioned in my review in my comments the other week on Big Trouble Little China that that film in particular subverted the whole white savior myth. With The Last Samurai, it seems to be kind of a lot more respectful of Japanese culture than other films. Um the film seems to kind of straddle the line between reinforcing stereotypes but simultaneously showing the tragedy of losing a unique culture um and it's kind of respectful at the same time um there are flashbacks to olgren flighting native americans um referred to as savages by timothy spall timothy spall is in this which kind of grabbed they kind of shot it was like oh look it's timothy spall and obviously before that we see billy connolly and i was like it's I billy connolly um, so anyway uh, that's yeah uh, uh, my, my things there <laughs> um yeah 
so yeah we, we the native americans are kind of you know referred to as savages and the, the samurai in the film is uh, the early on in the film is kind of implied to be the japanese equivalent um you know they're, they're a culture both cultures in fact you know are kind of forced to either modernize or die um it kind of takes the line of dances with wolves that the mount might the white man kind of understands the savage becomes the savage and all helps save the savage i'm obviously being being blunt with this um the motoko motoko reach uh in a piece that was in the new york times which i'll link to in the show notes i'm giving the readers the listeners a lot of reading um <laughs> said that the film um forces those to question whether its depiction of the japanese culture was either um racist naive well-intentioned accurate or all of the above and i kind of think he's correct in saying that and i think it was one of the things that was on my mind when viewing the film um kind of interlinked with this are the, are the performances from the asian actors uh, notably ken watanabe and hiroyuki saneda um so ken watanabe was you know this is kind of like his big hollywood first hollywood role after kind of being a, a staple of japanese cinema since the 80s um he was in tampopo a film that i mentioned in my review of uh, cinema paradiso which i still um, have to see which we still have to see um he's an actor who kind of has ended up being in quite a few hollywood productions from this point going forward um it did kind of he did get mentioned uh, not he did get nominated for for best supporting actor at the oscars for this performance yes um, which i don't think is entirely unjustified I, I think it's perfectly it's great it's for a first role coming into hollywood it is certainly it's very very good i gotta say um his kind of hollywood follow-up to this batman begins as the imposter version of Ra's al ghul you know the actual version of Ra's al ghul being played by liam neeson um you know batman begins kind of wastes his talent and then nolan sort of does christopher nolan sort of does it again in inception where he kind of he shoots ken watanabe's character and is kind of ends up becoming like a dead weight through the film um his performances ken watanabe's performances as dr serizawa um in godzilla and godzilla the king of the monsters kind of adds a cla- uh, class to it Sorry, um, you lost, I, lost I you there. think Can you that, that I, I, hello. His performances as Doctor Kira, Doctor, hello, hello. Yeah, I can hear. You. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Right. Yep. Okay. His performances as Doctor Serizawa in Godzilla and Godzilla: King of the Monsters kind of add an air of class to what I think are, are really excellent blockbusters. Plus, he says Godzilla better than anyone else. If you see Godzilla, you know, the Gareth Edwards one of 2014 or its follow-up, you know, the way he says Godzilla is just excellent. <laughs> so here, his role um, as the head of the rebelling samurai clan is one of kind of nobility and class, which is kind of where his persona has kind of ended up in Hollywood. Um, and it's kind of what you get when someone hires Ken Watanabe. Um, I was extremely pleased to see Hiroyuki Seneda, um who in this film is the um samurai Would warrior you? um who, warrior who kind of teaches um he's great isn't he yeah so he kind of teaches tom cruise how to you know swing a sword basically um samurai. I, I love i love seeing Hiroyuki Seneda. he is in my opinion the asian version of shia wiggum in the 
you see Sheer Wigan in a film or in a TV series and you just automatically you're on board because he's an actor that you love seeing and and you know he's he's been always been a highlight um Hiroko Sineda in Hollywood films that I've seen him in uh The Wolverine uh, he was in Life uh Sunshine um and uh, Avengers Endgame um, he was in Avengers kind of, Endgame, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And I really hope, I really hope to see him in the Hawkeye TV series that's going to come out, but maybe not. Um, his best role, in my opinion, um, so far up until today, is in the TV series Westworld. Um, he is kind of responsible for helping put the portrayal of Shogun World. Uh, spoilers for season two of Westworld. Um, he's kind of responsible for helping the betrayal of Shogun World kind of seem realistic and actually be respectful to the Japanese culture that it's showing. You know, helping American writers and directors and, and visual effects guys and stuff have how to respectfully show Japanese culture. Um, there's a really, really good article on Haruko Sinoda's role in the portrayal of Japanese customs and culture, which I will link to in the show notes. More reading for you. Um... <laughs> This seems to be this is something really important to to Hiroki and and rightfully so, and kind of very, through various other interviews he's given in the past about him, you know he he wants to make sure all the little details are correct. Um, his role in this is one where he's really only given one line, but his persona and physicality matches and I think surpasses that of Tom Cruise. Absolutely. Speaking of Tom Cruise. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna try, I'm gonna try and audibly crack my fingers on on the mic. Okay. There we go. Right. Bring it on. I am on record for saying on this podcast and elsewhere that I think Tom Cruise is the world's greatest star ever. <laughs> okay. He's the he's the right. John Crawford of 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 the early of the noughties and and beyond. I. All right. I I don't have really much more to think about much more than to say than I think what Tom Cruise does in this is he does it he does his Tom Cruise thing you know pretty well <laughs> so in in 2003 which is when this film came out um he was coming off of Minority Report with Steven Spielberg in 02 and then he followed this with Collateral with Michael Mann in 2004 um two very interesting and differing performances um, by the he, way I think Collateral is my favorite Tom Cruise film. Ah, uh, it's excellent, and he plays he, he he's it's his only film that he plays a villain. Yeah, and I used to, I, mean, I remember when I in in the in the early two thousands I used to think about well, is it a Tom Cruise film where he doesn't smile because he has that smile, right? Yeah. And in Collateral, you don't see him smile that Tom Cruise smile once, and I knew there was something special about that performance yeah i mean it's it's kind of really interesting this his his roles in the early 2000s you think about his role in minority report it's very it kind of it it's a very cerebral film he's kind of joining together his um his performances in eyes wide shut and magnolia to just for his the record other work of mission impossible for example is more action fairing work yeah, go go for it. Just to make it clear, I do not consider Magnolia to be a Tom Cruise film. Um, I th- I think Magnolia is by far an ensemble superior- piece. It's yeah, an ensemble it's an ensemble piece. Yeah, it's I yeah. think Magnolia is by far superior to Collateral, but Magnolia is just it's it's more it's so much more than Tom Cruise. 
Collateral, yeah, yeah. on the other hand, is just yeah, Tom Cruise with Jamie Foxx. Yeah. I, I, I want to clarify, like, I, I think, you know, there's a distinct difference between his acting roles of the 90s and his more blockbuster-orientated work in the 2000s and 2010s. Yep. Um, I think his past star persona in this, you know, in... in He kind of tries... It tries he's just bridging the gap between these two things. Um, and... You know, his at this point, you know, his star status was ramping up to hyperbolic levels. Um, he was always a very, very big star, but in the early two thousands, it was it was getting it was, to, yeah. it was ramping up, and it still is to this day uh, in in extremely high levels. I remember watching in in two thousand and eight. I think it was two thousand eight. It was when Night and Day came out, the the James Mangold film um that he did with uh um, Cameron Diaz Cameron Diaz oh no it was 2010 so this was about 10 years ago so Tom Cruise you know biggest action star or movie star ever in the world and he appears on Top Gear and I just remember being really weirded out seeing Jeremy <laughs> Clarkson interview Tom Cruise on a car show called Top Gear and it was just it was just this moment of being like this man is like a superhuman it's like you speak of him in myth and it, it's yeah anyway i don't want to kind of get into this too much because um i i am working on a project that kind of centers on tom cruise called <laughs> it's it's called wait for it the title is excellent cruiseology um, um which um kind of will either kind of come alive on my youtube channel or on my website i haven't really decided yet but i find it astonishing I... that you hadn't seen this film before i told you about it I mean, you probably knew of it, but you hadn't seen it. Oh no, I, I, so <laughs> it's funny you say that because I, I, when when I was going through telling people about the podcast, um, this was on obviously on the list of the second batch of films that we discussed of doing after our first ten, and I mentioned to people that you know Last Samurai, and everyone went, "You haven't seen Last Samurai? You call yourself a film guy, and you haven't seen Last Samurai?" Um, you know, my brother does it, you know, a couple of my friends do it, colleagues do it, and it's just a bit like, yeah, yeah, I just haven't, didn't get around to it. Um, and, but there are two things which people single out on as it comes to reasons why they, I should watch it. So the first is the score by Hans Zimmer. Um, it's a really, really good score, Okay. A lot of people will say it's it's you know it's iconic and all this. I, I I think it's a really really good score. I ultimately just think Hans Zimmer is kind of rehashing and reworking. I don't say rehashing is a bit negative, but reworking the score he did for the Thin Red Line, just with a more Japanese flavor to it. Um, the Thin Red Line is 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 a masterpiece, and the score for that I I listen to perhaps more than any other score bar the Social Network. Um, but I I think the Thin Red Line, like I've mentioned before, like it does what the Last Samurai does, but it does it kind of so much better. I don't want to say that it doesn't detract or demean those that say the score is great because it is it's pretty good. I just think his score for the Thin Red Line is, in my opinion, you know, is is Hans Zimmer's best work. Um, I haven't I, seen I, Thin Red Line. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> what was that? Okay. 
um it would be really really interesting to kind of have an i was gonna say this i was gonna say that it'd be really interesting to have a bonus episode on han zimmer and perhaps some other mcunfosers but now that you've said you haven't seen the third red line i think the thin red line has to take precedence um yeah uh so the second thing that people point out is the final battle sequence um it is shot extremely well um a director that i'm not familiar with edward zwick i know he did the sequel to jack reacher jack reacher never go back um which is apparently meant to be weaker than the first jack reacher film i haven't seen the sequel but i've seen the first one um and he's he's done a he's just done it's not like he did blood Di- like he said blood diamond love and other drugs legends of the fall defiance it's all these like like defiance like my dad loves it like legends of fall my dad likes that blood diamond my dad likes that it just seems to be like films that my dad would like <laughs> um not anything that i would really want to watch myself or not is not high on my list um i, I quite like legends of the fall i haven't seen it that's what i mean and like, these glory films... glory is amazing glory glory yeah i that's the film on the u.s civil war isn't it yes with uh, that's the film that won denzel washington his first oscar uh. best supporting matthew broderick is in this it is wow. and he and 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 um carrie Hughes. Morgan, morgan freeman i was i was more freaking out about the fact that carrie Hughes was in it but yeah um <laughs> yeah denzel washington and morgan freeman i think that's the only film they did together from as far as i know I mean, if Wesley from The Princess Bride is in it, I'm going to watch it, so... <laughs> as you wish. Um, <laughs> as you wish. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm sidetracking. So, the, 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 the final battle sequence is, is kind of the thing that a lot of people point out, and I think it is shot very, very well, you know. I, I understand the geography, I understand the stakes, and I, the score kind of creates the emotional heft that the film needs in order for the sequence to, to succeed. Um, if you think of 2003, um, what else came out in 2003 that featured a big battle sequence? Troy? Uh, no, that was 2004. Yeah. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Oh, yeah. Uh, the well... Battle of Minas Tirith. Um, anyway, okay. but I, I, if we're talking about battle sequence in Lord of the Rings films... The battle for Helm's Deep is miles better than the battle for Minas Tirith. Just, I'm just, in, in terms of visuals, anyway. Anyway. Was it done um, CGI? Minas Tirith 1 was, is kind of this combination. So it's that's Pentiment's not, that's like of, cheating. Yeah, so I'm kind of, that's what I'm getting onto. So in this battle sequence in The Last Samurai, there's a, there's a, there's this one point there was this wide shot of the battle. And it's really refreshing to see that scale from a film in, in Hollywood um from hollywood so think of how like scale is kind of hidden or manufactured with like cgi in other films and i think helm's deep in two towers does it excellently and i think return of the king does it but not as good as helm's deep there is a reason why helm's deep works so well and the why the reason why helm's uh minas tirith one doesn't um i think the in the last samurai i think the fight choreography was pretty good I think the they obviously use the edit to kind of hide odd movements and the fact that Tom Cruise struggles with a sword. 
Um, I mean, Tom Cruise, he's great at stunts. I mean, he's literally he's one of the few actors that would literally go there and do it. Um, you know, anything yeah, he's, he's done in the mission. By, he's been inspired by Buster Keaton, by the way. Oh, it all comes back to Buster Keaton. It all comes back to Buster Keaton. Um, so, that, yeah, Tom Cruise is like great at stunts. And you think about what the stuff he's done on the Mission Impossible films. But, you know, his sword play is nowhere near on the same level. I mean, it's fine. He, you know, he can't be good at everything. Um, <laughs> so, uh, aspect, there are aspects of this film that I liked. There was one little thing that bugged me with the battle. And it's uh, such a... I, I'm annoyed at myself that I picked up on it and I'm annoyed by it and I spoke to my friend about it earlier today when I said to him that I was just coming on to record this and I spoke to him about this thing because he said that Last Samurai is one of his favourite films and we kind of had it out a bit of a verbal argument a bit of verbal to and fro about this um, so yeah at one point Tom Cruise's captain Nathan Algren, you know gives Ken Watanabe the example of Watanabe. the 300 Watanabe that's what I said okay um, he kind of gives him the example of the 300 that fought against the Persians as I'm an example late. of a yeah, the, the example of the small amount of men that fought to the last man and, and held out for two days you know, the, the, the Battle of Phenopylae but the thing with that battle was it was only really successful because these, it wasn't just Greeks it was like Spartans and Thebians and, and all sorts but they funneled the, the army the mass army of the Persians into such a small space Meaning that their numbers were, were meaningless. Here, so it, it said like this, and it would be really, really good for them to take inspiration from that and be like, oh, we need to take the tactical advantage. And it would add more emotional and, and thematic depth if they were to kind of recreate or at least have a spin on the Battle of Thermopylae. Because this film isn't based on historical events it's based on accounts of various different things so they could be a bit more creatively liberal with what it they're going to do in the battle sequence well, it's based on various different accounts it's not based on a single thing it's just like it's various different things they're taking things from here there and everywhere there there wasn't a, an american captain that went over it was apparently a french guy that went over and 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 did something similar but it wasn't the same recounting of the story um anyway so but the, the 300 battled against this and they kind of funneled the mass army into a like a corridor of a mountain in this it, it the battlefield is as a literal field it's massive you know they outsmart the the japanese forces with tactics but then they get massacred when they ride against the gatling guns and the film it had an opportunity to kind of add more thematic depth into using the sparta or the, i'm going to say spartans the 300 in that battle sequence as to kind of add the whole we fought to the last man it does it very very well i just think there could have been that extra step and okay i'm i'm, re I'm doing the backseat director thing again aren't i fine um okay I, th I think honestly i think the film does so much things very very well i i really do i i do i, I liked it there there the, like i said i think there are other films that kind of do this but much better and i think apart from the score you know a few performances you know the pre presence of tom cruise and kent watanabe and and hiroki Seneda and you know the final battle i there is kind of little that makes this film kind of stand out and it's it's refreshing to see something like this be 
it's refreshing to see this film in the era of mass blockbusters that you know that we're supposedly living in but obviously the cinemas have been shut down for six months and for the foreseeable future so with it's refreshing to see something like this where there is act there's there's you know practical craft gone into it you know on the same kind of level as lord of the rings um it's just there are other films that came up before this that kind of did it better and it's almost as though the film is like you know i spoke about how in the last samurai in 2003 this we're seeing a stepping stone of where tom cruise is as an actor and as a star this is almost the same kind of thing in between it's the stepping stone between what we got in the early 90s um, and the Thid Red Line came out in 1998. And then, because this film could arguably be seen as a reaction to the Thin Red Line, as like, you know, a producer had saw that and went, oh, we can do something like that, and then did this. And then, a stepping stone into to other things that came out in the, in the later 2000s. So, in all in all, I did like the film. I really, really did. You don't need to go on a mass defence of the film, because I am on board with it. I just think there are other films that have done it better and ultimately that's kind of where I stand with it. Okay. okay. Is that other... Yeah. Any, yeah, any, I, anything else to add? No, I feel sorry for our listeners because I've just ended up rambling for, for a long, long time and, and they that's haven't got not, much That's of, not much unusual. They're used to it by now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I still... If we still have a bit of time, I would like to say a few words about the film and why I chose it, if I may. Um, <laughs> I really, I, I really liked this film when I first saw it in cinema. I think it came to Romania in two thousand and four. Back then, I was quite a lot. I was very much interested in in Japanese culture, and I had seriously considered studying Japanese language at university. I ended up studying Japanese for a year about a lifetime ago it feels I've, regretfully i've forgotten most of it because it was very hard but maybe in the future I might i might just pick it up again so yeah i i, I think with each viewing i like it more and more there's something to say about how it manages to introduce elements of the japanese culture to the western world i know it is very much glamorized and all the Hollywood filters and embellishments are added on top of it and I know that other films have done it better in terms of like war strategy and battle strategy and all that you've just cleverly pointed out I'm not saying it's not a flawed film but I like the story I like a good story about the underdog and I like a good story of redemption and I think this is both with a glimpse of romance just for good measure to stop us from forgetting that it is a Hollywood film after all. So yeah, I just I did I watched it again quite recently, and I think it resonates with with me even more. I think what General Katsumoto stands for is just yeah, he's he's livelihood, his trade, he's defending his country the way his ancestors have done it. And yeah, he does oppose rapid changes for fear they will perhaps destroy the balance um, of his world. And I think I, I quite like the contrast between him and Omura, his sort of compatriot. And it just feels to me that 
Katsumoto was in touch with his own identity and he was more self-confident about being Japanese than Omura. He didn't, he didn't feel he had to prove the Western world that the Japanese people are, you know, ahead of it or whatever. Omura just wanted a rapid change for this country just to compete with the West, forgetting the values they had so that, was, so that made them unique. And I think you picked up on it quite well about, you know, all the Western people like the Americans coming in and calling them savages and demeaning them for choosing to live to live their life their own way. And I thought that was quite cleverly done. Um, and I, I mean, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to spend a lifetime looking for a perfect blossom if that's what you want to do. I really like that metaphor. And I think being in touch with nature, I think, is more important than everything than anything nowadays. I'm not going to go on the environmentalist tangent. I've been called many things about it: dirty hippie, eco-fascist by my friends. So I'm not going to talk about it more. I just felt that you know, labeling them as savage is always kind of misunderstanding the the other is always kind of led to trouble. And there's something that I picked up on quite recently after watched it, watching it a few times. Um, the loathsome Colonel, Colonel Bagley, I think. Something that he said made me think of what right-wing people always say on social media to people who sort of point out that the British past is probably not as praiseworthy as originally thought. They always go like, oh, why do you hate your country so much? And I think Colonel... Colonel Bagley says th says this to Nathan Algren, uh, and he misses the point entirely because I don't think Algren hates his country. He just doesn't fit in with it. He doesn't fit in with the values, and yeah, I think there's something to be said about the idea of of representation and and the, and you've picked up on the white savior trope, which yeah, it is kind of a bounce here, but I I think. If you look at it, I think it's actually Katsumoto who saves Algren and not the way around, the other way around. I mean, yeah, Tom is Tom and he does what Tom does best and you've cleverly pointed out what Tom does best and he, he's great at it. But I think that in this, he's the one that needs saving from, you know, drinking himself into oblivion and finding a small me measure of peace. I mean, you, you, I, just to interject, you did have you, you say that 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 you know um, Tom didn't save Katsumoto. Katsumoto it was maybe perhaps the other way around. But Tom Cruise does. This is one of the things I had an argument with my friend about. Tom Cruise does walk in at the end and it it's saves Japan almost by giving the sword. Like he interrupts the the. The, the trade talks and convinces the emperor to not you know sign the trade agreement with the americans and to keep hold of the japanese culture and ultimately you know save japan and it, it, it kind of just it really rubbed me the wrong way and but i think that if, that film could have done without hadn't... that okay i think tom cruise should have died on the battlefield and i think the emperor should have like the like the soldier who ultimately told 
um, them to stop firing. He told, you know, Mr. Mora was stood there and he was shouting orders. And then the soldier who was, you know, we saw earlier in the film that he was trained by by Nathan Algren, you know, he, he, they stood down and then they kneeled in respect. I think they would have been more powerful. I'm rewriting the film again. I think it would have been more powerful if Tom Cruise and Katz and, and, uh, Katsumoto died on the battlefield and then the the emperor kind of then withdrawing from the trade agreements because of the sacrifice that had been made it would have been a more powerful statement but obviously tom cruise has to live because it's tom cruise (sighs) like i said it's not a a, it's it's a flawed film it's not a perfect film and it, it is after all it is a tom cruise vehicle um, to be fair, I did have an, an issue with Tom Cruise surviving, but if we're talking about what the values and every like all the like the the subtext of the film, in the end, it is Katsumoto who saves him from himself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the silent. The silent samurai who's, you know, called Bob ends up only speaking one line, which is Algurusan, and then jumps in front of a bullet. That kind of rubbed me the wrong way as well, but I don't, I don't know. Like you said, it is a flawed film. It is a flawed film. I, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, yeah. You can carry on if you wanted. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So yeah, I just, I just, I just love Ken Watanabe's portrayal of Katsumoto in this. I think it's great. Um, I think he sh- probably should have won the Oscar for it, but Tom, Tim's Rob- Tim Robbins got instead for Mystic River. I just, when I see t- uh, Ken Watanabe in this, I, th- I, th- I think I can't help but think of a bit of Tashiro Mifune, the way he carries himself. There's a bit of line in him, I think. And I thought he was great in it. I thought he was brilliant. Um, so, but having said that, I think Tom did hold his own. He spent, I think, he spent two years learning Japanese for the for this film, and you kind of see him trying to speak Japanese. And he doesn't like, butcher it. No, he doesn't. Like and there are there are Western actors that I have seen absolutely butcher the Japanese language, and to be fair to Tom, he doesn't. So that's one thing. Um, yeah, the rest of the cast are amazing as well. Timothy Spall, always a win. I love him. Billy Connolly, like I said, it's always he's always a delight to see. Uh, Koyuki uh, pl- uh, playing Taka, um, I thought was very, very, very sweet and very sad. I think she portrayed womanhood in the 19th century Japan quite well. Um, Shinko Yamada playing Nobutada was absolutely lovely. Uh, Nobutada was um, what Katsumoto's son. I think he was just brilliant, especially with his jolly good. I really liked him. Um, his death referenced Platoon, of course. I thought, yeah, I thought it was a nice touch. And like you said, Hiroyuki Sanada playing Ujio had such ferocity in him. It was just it was a spectacle to just watch him on the battlefield. Those scenes reminded me of Scarface, the way he was taking all the bullets and just barely flinching. It was just like, it was brilliant. There's a ferocity to him that is, is 
it's so much like Bifune, um, to kind of go back to the Kira Kurosawa connection. Like, I can definitely see him, Mifune, in Senator's acting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Especially in, especially in Westworld, um, season two. Cool. Um, just a, uh, yeah, a small note. Contrary to popular conception, the title does not refer to, um, Nathan Algren. It refers to, it's a plural, the, the word samurai is in plural form, so it refers to the, to Katsumoto's clan as a whole. And the character of Katsumoto is inspired by real life samurai. Um, Saigo Takamori, who led a samurai rebellion in um, 1877. And as in the movie, Saigo ended up committing suicide after de defeat in battle. And the emperor's attitude in, in, in towards Katsumoto's struggle and death reflects actual Japanese popular sentiment towards Saigo, who, though defeated, was regarded as a hero and a statue of Saigo was erected shortly after his death and can be seen in, in northeast Tokyo. And the only that I could find, the only major difference between Saigo and Katsumoto is that um, Katsumoto is only shown in traditional um, um, wear and wielding traditional weapons, whereas Saigo did wear modern clothing and he did use modern weaponry during the rebellion. And I think, um, for my part anyway, I think I'm, my, the la I'm, I'm saving the best to last. My favorite th thing about the movie is Hans Zimmer's music. I, I just really, really loved it. I have the soundtrack songs from the cinema, my usual rotation on Spotify, and it's probably my favorite Zimmer composition. Yes, I know, I have not seen the, the Thin Red Line. Um, but yeah, just a quick um, funny story I found in terms of like six degrees of separation. I was listening to a French podcast the other day about Akira Kurosawa's career. And someone said that Ennio Morricone, when working on the Westerns with Sergio Leone, took inspiration from Kurosawa's collaboration with composers Fumio Hayasaka and Matsuro Sato and of course Hans Zimmer had come out to say that he's been inspired by Ennio Morricone so kind of like the film comes full circle in terms of, of musical soundtrack score and inspiration so yeah I got I got a bit of a I got a bit of a a, a, a weird uh, six degrees of separation thing uh, connection between the two films so Ran's um, assistant director was Ashiru Honda um, who was the director of the 1954 film Godzilla and uh, loads of sequels and loads of other Toho monster movies and he was um, Kurosawa's sec second, your second unit director pretty much for Ran and obviously Ken Watanabe plays uh, Dr. Sirizawa in the remake of Godzilla and Godzilla King of the Monsters. Just, I, just, yeah, I, that's all I, that's my last contribution to the podcast. Ever. <laughs> I could retire now. So what have we got on for next week? 
so next week we're going for um westerns um we've got joan crawford in 1954's johnny guitar uh directed by nicholas ray um which i'm really looking forward to more uh, information on joe crawford from danny i'm sure you've got lots up your sleeve i do um and then we're watching this with uh, mccabe and mrs miller directed by robert altman from 1971 starring Warren Beatty and julie christie looking forward to it uh so yeah a couple of westerns going on next week we're, we're, we're mixing up um so danny where can we find you on the internet so you can find me on Twitter at Kino Joan and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on the internet. I'm on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler. Um, my website is superatomovision.com. Um, I've got a couple of pieces on there at the moment on the work of Panos Cosmatos, uh, the director of Mandy and Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, so if you wanted to give that a read, that's up on there. Um, and we've got our... Podcast Twitter account uh, at Keenotomic. Uh, drop us a follow on there, and uh, our Gmail Keenotomic at gmail dot com. Is 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 there anything you want to know from our listeners, Danny? Um. Yeah, I just want to know thoughts about Japanese culture and what it means to you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that's that's a good that's a, that's a good thing to to find out from our listeners. Um, so it is a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me. Goodbye and thank you for listening.